1: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss, and if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.
0: Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, episode 75, The Munich Agreement Part 7, To the Brink. During the last week of September 1938, Europe seemed to be incredibly close to descending into war. On the morning of September 26th, the details of the Gottesberg Memorandum would be printed in the Times of London, with rumors that their information was sourced directly from Prague. It was also public knowledge all over Europe that governments were preparing for a conflict, Just the day before, gas masks had begun to be distributed around Britain from the air raid precaution stations out of fear that the first moves in any conflict would be German air raids. On the continent, the Czechoslovakian army had been mobilized, including 500 aircraft, and in France, 23 divisions had been placed in readiness on the German border for defensive purposes, with the additional hope that their mere presence would also deter German aggression. War appeared to be imminent, and there also appeared to be no way to avert it. The French and British governments were still in close communication, and after their meetings on the evenings of September 25th, General Gamelin, the French chief of staff, would also be brought to London to participate in future discussions. What was clear by this point was that the government in Prague would not accept the Gottesberg proposals, and if they did not, then Germany would invade, and then France would be pulled into the war, and then Britain would as well. The British had reassured the French that they would in fact join in the war in her defense, But even with this assurance, Dalladay was pretty concerned about French chances during the opening stages of any conflict. Gamelin, in a role reversal from some earlier events, brought with him some positivity. He promised that the French army was ready and willing to attack the German defenses just five days after the start of hostilities. Now, I'm not completely sure if Gamelin actually believed this, or if he was just putting on a good show. But from everything we know today about the French military preparations, such an attack seems very unlikely, bordering on impossible. Similar assurances would be made to Poland in August 1939, and well, I guess we'll get there eventually and you can draw your own conclusions, but I don't think these attacks were ever going to happen. On September 26th, the British cabinet would meet once again, mostly to discuss the ongoing preparations for war. Topics like the manning of anti-aircraft defenses, ensuring that coastal defense units were in place, and arrangements were made to call up territorial units. It was also decided to recall all members of the Royal Air Force who were on leave. Wilson would also be readied for a trip to Berlin to deliver the message we discussed last episode concerning the unity of Britain and France should Germany attack Czechoslovakia. He would have this meeting with Hitler mere hours before the German leader was scheduled to give a speech in Berlin which some were concerned would be the moment that Hitler would declare war. In Berlin, Hitler, returning to Berlin from OberSalzburg, was not exactly happy about all the developments in Paris and London. For months, the plans had been a quick invasion of Czechoslovakia on or near the start of October, but the sudden massive increase in tensions caused some issues with that plan. The purpose for the quick invasion that had been the hallmark of German planning up to this point was that it would be over before other nations could respond. But with both the Czechoslovak army mobilized and the French army partially mobilized, and also the British now obviously preparing for war, things were going to become more difficult. This forced some changes to the German invasion plans, with a shift to a two-phase invasion, with the Sudeten areas first occupied before launching into the full invasion of the rest of the country. This two-phase approach allowed for changes to be made, or discussions to occur with other nations if required. It was in this atmosphere that Wilson would arrive to deliver his message, with, which did nothing to put Hitler in a better mood. The core of the message was simply that France would honor her treaty commitments to Czechoslovakia, and Britain would join her. This apparently threw Hitler into another one of his rage-induced ranting sessions. The targets for the rant were Banesh, the Czechs, Britain, France, everybody. He made it clear to Wilson that he would only enter into negotiations with Prague if they accepted the Gottesberg Memorandum in full, and to German troops being in the Sudeten areas no later than October 1st. When Wilson asked if there was a message that he should deliver to London, uh, Hitler would shout, and then Schmidt would translate, quote, If France and England strike, let them do so. It is a matter of complete indifference to me. I am prepared for every eventuality. I can only take note of the position. It is Tuesday today, and by next Monday, we shall all be at war. End quote. This meeting occurred a bit after noon on September 26th, and just to make it clear what the time frame was on these discussions, Hitler had put a deadline for the acceptance of the Gottesberg Memorandum at, on September 28th at 2pm, so roughly about 48 hours after the meeting with Wilson, like, he, he expected Prague to either accept or, or go to war. The implication was that non-acceptance on that date would lead directly into a conflict. Later that evening, Hitler would give a speech with 20,000 Nazi supporters in attendance, and it broadcast via radio all over Germany. The content was, by this point, sort of typical Hitler talking points. Direct insults thrown at Banesh, saying, quote, The Czech state began with a single lie, and the father of this lie was named Banesh. I have demanded that now, after 20 years, Mr. Banesh should at last be compelled to come to terms with the truth. On 1 October, he will have to hand over to us this area. Now, two men stand arrayed one against the other. There is Mr. Banesh, and here stand I. Quote. There was also a lot of the similar type of discussions about related topics that I won't bother you with, a lot of insults thrown around in those type of things, and discrimination against Germany and, and the Germans in the Sudeten area is just the same list of things we've been discussing this whole time. Apparently, the speech made quite an impression, though, uh, with several Germans who listened to it on the radio commenting on his brutal delivery, uh, to use a quote. At the same time, when it was translated for the government in London, the overall feeling about the speech was that it did not justify an immediate order for mobilization. This was quite a favorable outlook on the speech, which was clearly preparing the German people for war. Wilson would return to London and would attend meetings where updated evaluations on the German and Czechoslovak militaries were presented to Chamberlain and other leaders. The information provided was that the Czechoslovaks did not have a great chance of putting up a prolonged and successful defense. An update on the mood of the Dominions was also provided, with Stanley Bruce trying to impress upon others. In the meeting, that the Dominion governments were not at all pleased with the idea of going to war and felt that the Gottesberg terms should be accepted. Finally, discussions were had with the First Sea Lord about the preparations made by the Royal Navy should a war be just a few days away. It was requested by the First Sea Lord that he be allowed to fully mobilize the Navy, which Chamberlain agreed to. After all of these meetings, Chamberlain would make his own radio broadcast. The contents would be a general summation of Chamberlain's views. Although they were not delivered as articulately as maybe they could have been. Here's a small quote. However much we may sympathize with a small nation confronted by a big, powerful neighbor, we cannot in all circumstances undertake to invoke the whole British Empire in war simply on her account. If we have to fight, it must be on larger issues than that. I am myself a man of peace to the depths of my soul. Armed conflict between nations is a nightmare to me. But if I am convinced that any nation had made up its mind to dominate the world by fear of its force, I should feel that it must be resisted. War is a fearful thing, and we must be very clear before we embark on it, that it is really the great issues that are at stake, and that the call to risk everything in their defense, when all the consequences are weighed, is irresistible. Quote. Those within the government who you might expect to react negatively to the message that I just read certainly did with Churchill, for example, telephoning Cooper saying that it represented preparation to scuttle. After the speech, another cabinet meeting would be held. This meeting was primarily based around Wilson informing the others how his meeting with Hitler had gone, which was, of course, not well. He would then suggest that, quote, the only plan which could prevent the country from being overrun would be for the Czechoslovak government to withdraw their troops from the Red Areas and allow Germany to occupy them without loss of life, end quote. As with earlier suggestions of applying such pressure to Prague to make them do these, these actions, this was not well received by many within the cabinet. I realize I have quoted Duff Cooper quite a bit during these episodes, which can be attributed to the fact that David Faber in Munich 1938, Appeasement in World War II, heavily utilizes Cooper and his quotes to represent the anti-appeasement viewpoints within the British cabinet, but I'll, I'll give just one more here. After Wilson had made his suggestion, Cooper would say, quote, If we are now to desert the Czechs or even advise them to surrender, we should be guilty of one of the basest betrayals in history. End quote.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw.
1: Back in Berlin, preparations for the invasion were ongoing. After his meeting with Wilson ended, Hitler had given the orders that the troops that would be involved in the invasion, which involved about seven divisions, would be moved from their exercise areas up to their jumping-off points. Beyond this move, there was the reaffirmation that they be fully prepared and ready to be given the final orders on September 30th, and then to begin the invasion at 6am on October 1st. Orders were also sent out by the OKW for five divisions to be moved into the Western defenses to protect against any possible French aggression. This movement was done in secret as much as possible. Along with this, the final preparations for full mobilization were made. In Germany, this meant that one of the primary pieces of this preparation was for all of the local uh, Nazi party officials to be notified that they might be receiving direct orders from the OKW in the following days. It was made clear to those Nazi party authorities that these orders could and should be obeyed without question or delay, and they didn't have to be checked with Nazi party authorities. While these orders were being relayed to the various German groups, around Europe there was a constant series of communications and conversations happening in all of the capitals. Italy was also becoming far more involved, having been mostly on the outside of any discussions up to this point. Mussolini was very keen to bring Hitler together with the other leaders to try and find some way to avoid war, with Italy certainly not ready to participate in such a conflict, but also Mussolini kind of hoping to up Italy's prestige by playing peacemaker. Early in the morning of September 28th, Chamberlain wrote to Hitler with his last series of offers, which included a phased occupation of the Sudetenland and for some small immediate territory transfers on the border. This information was relayed not just to Paris, but also to Rome, with Chamberlain asking Mussolini to use whatever influence he had on Hitler to try and bring him to the negotiating table. These final messages set the stage for the events on the morning of September 28th, which, you know, was a couple of hours before the ultimatum was due to expire. At 11.15am, Hitler would meet with the French ambassador, Andrew Francois Ponce, who was fully briefed by Paris on the contents of Chamberlain's final proposals. He hoped to get Hitler to agree to them, and even offered to expand the zones of immediate occupation, which represented a much larger percentage of the total Sudeten territory than what the British were offering. While their meeting was still occurring at roughly 1140, uh, the Italian ambassador in Berlin, Antolico, would arrive at the German chancellery. He brought with him a message directly from Mussolini in Rome to Hitler. Mussolini had asked Antolico to meet with Hitler as soon as possible and relay to him that Mussolini and Italy favored accepting their proposals. However, the message also made it clear that Mussolini supported Hitler in any decision that he would make. At this point, the future lay directly in Hitler's hands. War seemed inevitable all over Europe. Armies were mobilizing. Trenches were being dug all over the continent. In eastern France and western Germany, trains were packed with people trying to get out of cities, out of fear of air attack. But it was also at this moment, so close to the expiration of the ultimatum, that Hitler decided to postpone mobilization and the invasion. He invited British Ambassador Henderson to speak with him just before 2 p.m. on the 28th and informed him of two things. The first was that he was delaying mobilization by 24 hours. Second, he was going to send invitations to London, Paris, and Rome for government leaders to meet with him in Munich the following day. This would give everyone the opportunity to come to an agreement and avoid war. What was also made clear— was that the threat of German military action was in no way removed, just delayed, until after the meeting could occur. This request was then relayed to London at 3.15pm, with Henderson telephoning the foreign office and saying, quote, Herr Hitler invites the Prime Minister to meet him in Munich tomorrow morning. He also invited Signor Mussolini, who will arrive at 10am, and Monsieur Daladay. Similar messages would also be relayed to Paris and Rome. One of the challenges for the British government was that when this arrived, Chamberlain was at that very moment in the Commons giving a speech. Chancellor of the Exchequer Simon was informed via a note, but was unsure how to give the information to Chamberlain, not wanting to really interrupt him mid-monologue. There was a brief break in his speaking, uh, which would allow for a spot of applause from those who were listening, and that provided an opportunity and the note was passed to Chamberlain. Chamberlain then decided, and Simon agreed, that the Commons should be informed at that very moment, and when he began speaking again, he announced that Hitler had agreed to postpone mobilization. He would finish up by saying, quote, that is not all. I have something further to say to the House yet. I have now been informed by Herr Hitler that he invites me to meet him at Munich tomorrow morning. He has also invited Signor Mussolini and Monsieur Dalladay. Signor Mussolini has accepted, and I have no doubt that Daladay will also accept. I need not say what my answer will be. Chamberlain would then later write to Hitler, saying, After reading your letter, I feel certain that you can get all essentials without war and without delay. I'm ready to come to Berlin myself at once to discuss arrangements for transfer with you and representatives of the Czech government, together with representatives of France and Italy if you desire. With this letter and the agreement of the German-Italian, French, and British governments to meet in another round of negotiations, the final stage of the Munich saga was about to begin. With the threat slightly postponed, we should probably discuss one kind of adjacent topic that we've mentioned a little bit before. A few episodes ago, I discussed the possibility of a German coup d'etat led by General Halder, the chief of the general staff. We left that conspiracy at a point where they knew the military leaders they needed to convince and then how they would use them in the case of the plan being put in place, kind of, you know, with where they were positioned around Germany. However, if you remember, one of the key prerequisites for that scheme to work is that they needed Hitler to actually bring Germany into a war. They felt that this was the only way they could ensure support for their overthrow of his government because it was felt that the German people did not really want war. They also needed Hitler to be present in Berlin just because it was there where their military strength was the strongest and it was essential that he be kidnapped as part of the process so they, they really just needed him in Berlin. During these final days before the ultimatum expired, Hitler was in Berlin, so that was taken care of, and it appeared that war was about to begin, so things appeared to be going well, but then Hitler backed down and suggested further negotiations. This destroyed the plans that were put in place. Beyond the simple logistical problems, Hitler was now preparing for a trip to Munich, and there were two other problems. The first was simply that war would not be declared, which meant that nothing could actually be done to Hitler. But more importantly, it was impossible for them to act in any way while Hitler had asked for further negotiations with other European leaders and those other leaders had accepted. They could not arrest Hitler and accuse him of being a war criminal and taking Germany into a war when it was Hitler who had, at least publicly, said that he was attempting to preserve peace. As one of the conspirators would say, quote, "...the effect on our plans was bound to be disastrous." It would have been absurd to stage a push to overthrow Hitler at a moment when the British Prime Minister was coming to Germany to discuss with Hitler the peace of the world. While of course it is impossible to know if the conspirators and their plan to overthrow Hitler would have worked, personally I don't rate its success probabilities very highly due to the general support Hitler seems to have had among the German people and German government, what does seem absolutely certain is that this was probably the last point at which. Anything like this would have worked, or even had a chance of working. As we will discuss over the next two episodes, Hitler would, during the discussions in Munich, only increase his prestige and the appearances of his ability to expand Germany's power without resorting to war. By the next major war scare with Poland, Hitler would be essentially unassailable. In London, Czechoslovakia's ambassador, Jan Musserek, who was the son of Tomas Masaryk had been so important to the creation of Czechoslovakia, was informed of the upcoming plans for the meetings. He had also been informed of the proposals that had been made to Hitler over the previous days, as more and more of his country had been bargained away in the hopes of maintaining peace. Now there would be a conference of four European leaders where it appeared that the fate of Czechoslovakia would be decided, and there would be no representative of Czechoslovakia present. The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Schreier is a source that, that can be problematic, uh, but it does have some pretty good zingers. In this case, Schreier would say, quote, The Czechs were not even asked to be present at their own death sentence, end quote. Now, before he met with Chamberlain in Halifax, Musserich knew that a meeting was going to take place in Munich. But what he did not know was that no one from his nation would be present. And when he found out this fact, he would say simply, quote, If you have sacrificed my nation to preserve the peace of the world, I will be the first to applaud you. But if not, gentlemen, God help your souls.